Welcome back again to BadQuaker.com podcast. Today is podcast episode 79 for Tuesday, January 10th, 2012. With me, as always, is Nikki the dog and Baggy the cat. And once again, I'm podcasting from the motorhome, so there's going to be a lot of background noise. Right now, it's so nice outside that uh, I actually have the windows open. So at some point, if the traffic, if the... Uh, yeah, if the traffic noise becomes too much of a distraction, I may have to pause the recording and close the windows. But at this point, it's very nice outside. Uh, wonderful Missouri weather for January. <laughs> um, so we're gonna we're gonna run with it with the windows open at least to start with. We'll see how it goes. Baggy the cat just attempted to knock over the microphone stand. So. Um, uh, it's the typical stuff that we face here at BadQuaker.com. Regular listeners of this podcast know that quite often Kai, my daughter, is with me on the podcast. Where, to my knowledge, we're the only father-daughter anarchist team podcasting on the internet. If there's another, uh, somebody let me know. Drop me an email, Ben at BadQuaker.com, and because uh, I'd like to know about them, I will. Uh, maybe I can. Uh, get some kind of a collaboration going on. And if you are new to the podcast, we're a libertarian podcast. We tend towards anarcho-capitalism, but mostly the, uh, well, you know, the tagline that I use at the end of each podcast is that for liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to badquaker.com. And, and that's really what we want to emphasize. Not so much anarchy, not so much anarcho-capitalism, not so much libertarianism as a political theory. It's what we really want to focus on is proper, is understanding property rights, natural property rights, the zero aggression principle or the non-aggression principle, and the concept of liberty. Now, uh, you might hear in the background right now, we have uh, Nikki is getting a drink of water, we have cars driving by, and there's a bunch of roosters behind me crowing. Um, where we're parked in the motorhome, there's an auto uh, body shop behind me and a chicken hatchery. Uh, and at this particular time, all the sounds like all the roosters are choosing to uh, let us know that they're there with us. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's just kind of make this an introduction, uh, podcast, even though we've been, uh, Kai and I on and off, sometimes it's just me, sometimes it's both of us together. We've been podcasting for about a year now, not quite a year, but close to it. And we've actually done a couple of introductory podcasts to kind of explain who we were and what our purposes were. Um, but with the recent surge of listeners and uh, the expansion onto the Liberty Radio Network, uh, it's probably appropriate to just go ahead and give an overview of who we are and what we stand for and what we're trying to do here on the on the podcast. I mentioned, uh, well, first, before I get into that, let me give kind of just an idea of the website itself, badquaker.com. Uh, the the original concept, I um, have been a theist, uh, you know, always have. Uh, I, I took class, I took theology classes 
and I moved in that direction and I was kind of, this was in my early 20s, I was kind of expecting that I would go into the ministry at some point in time. But uh, the more that I learned about how Christian churches function, at least in the U.S., uh, and at least within the non-denominational structure that I was dealing with, and also I had quite a bit of background understanding from a certain denominational structures from my, from my family, uh, which were primarily uh, Baptist-oriented, um, I came to the conclusion that there was really nothing within the denominational structure that had any appeal to me. Um, so I pretty much just abandoned all of, uh, all of the, the whole idea of organized church. Now that's not to say I abandoned God or theism or the concept that there's something beyond what we ourselves perceive with our eyes and ears and so forth. Uh, but I realized that, um, that there was just no fundamental, uh, legitimacy to organized religion. And that's just my opinion. If you are a part of organized religion and, and you're comfortable with it, then, you know, good for you. I, I have no problem with that. Uh, I have lots of friends who attend church regularly, and I have some friends who look down upon me because I don't, but that's too bad. So, um, so I came to that conclusion, and then um, my mind went in different directions, and I decided to... I had always been libertarian. I was going door-to-door uh, circulating material in the late 70s, uh, circulating libertarian material. So I've been at this game a while now. I first, I like to say this pretty regularly, I voted for Ron Paul before most of his supporters were even alive. I voted for Ron Paul for president in 1988, when very few people uh, even knew there was a libertarian party, much less who Ron Paul was. So um, as my story develops and how I came to become what we consider a bad Quaker, um, I had pretty much, as I said, abandoned the whole denominational structure and everything. Uh, but I held on to my theistic beliefs. And uh, I began to focus my mind more on understanding politics and understanding uh, uh, exactly refining what my position was. And I found out that that was um, as, as futile. Uh, finding any kind of a home in politics is just as futile for me as finding any kind of a home within the den denominational church structure. So in a sense, even though I'm a theist, uh, I'm sort of a, not atheism, but more like a churchism, a, a organizationalism. I don't know. I don't know. I'd have to think about it a little more to make up a smoother word than that. And the same way that I'm apolitical, uh, and yet at the, at, at the same time, I, uh, have adopted a series of beliefs that allows me to consistently have a political and a theistic understanding. And as I moved towards that, I ran into an odd thing that Murray Rothbard wrote in, in one of his, uh, in his series of books, actually he had four books in the series. Uh, see, there's the background noise I was talking about. He had a four volume set called conceived in Liberty. And it, it was just a, uh, it's it's just a wonderful history from uh, the early colonial period till after the uh, the uh, um, war of independence 
and it's the most accurate uh, and most uh, comprehensive thing that I have ever encountered that covers that period of time. And I was uh, and I was going through that. I think it was about the second time that I had gone through it from one end to the other, and it struck me that Murray was explaining um, these these people uh, Quakers, and it dawned on me, you know, that's kind of interesting. And so I looked into it further, and I and it and I came to the conclusion that not only was I a Quaker. I had really always been a Quaker. I just didn't know I was. And that's kind of the case with being a libertarian as well. A lot of people go through their whole life and they're always libertarian. They may be confused about some things, but a lot of people are libertarian and have no idea. They just never really thought it out or they haven't encountered anyone who, who laid out the concept in a way that made sense to them. So this kind of falls back on, uh, oh, who was that? Was it Frank Chodorov? I'm not sure. I believe it was back in the 60s that one of the big libertarian thinkers said, uh, we don't teach libertarians, we, dis- we teach to discover libertarians. In other words, you can't teach someone to be a libertarian, to love liberty, and to want freedom. You can't teach that to a person. But the person who has that within them as we teach among each other, people hear that and they're drawn to it because it's deep within them. And that's what we have to unlock. We have to let people, we have to shine a light out so that other people can see it and they know where to come to. But they've already got it in their hearts and in their minds. They just maybe haven't fully formulated it all or haven't uh, haven't haven't thought about the different aspects. And... and you know, that's the thing about libertarianism is that it's it's simultaneously it, it's it's beautiful in its simplicity, yet um, baffling in its complexity at, at the same time. It's really wonderful. So so that we can all agree on this basic outline, and yet we work and we work among ourselves to develop the practical outworkings of libertarianism. And uh, so back to my to my story, um, as I began to figure out that I was and always had been a Quaker, there was one part of being a Quaker that uh, that I recognized that I would just never be able to live up to. It didn't matter if I wanted to. It didn't matter if I believed it was a good concept. Um, it's just a fact. I, it's it's not possible for me to be a pacifist. I am not a pacifist. It's not within my nature to be a pacifist. And it's impossible for me to twist myself and become a pacifist. If I am physically attacked, or if my family is physically attacked, uh, I take action. I I am I am incapable of not taking action. And it should be very. Um, I should make this very clear. I'm not talking about aggression. I'm talking about defensive action. Uh, it is as a libertarian and as a Quaker, I am both philosophically opposed to aggression and I am morally opposed to aggression and I make myself follow that rule. I will not aggress on someone else. On the other hand, I find pacifism unnatural and forced, uh, at least for me. And therefore, I do not think that 
passivism is um, uh, is a natural state for humankind or pretty much any other uh, semi-predatory animal because humans are a, a, a we're opportunists we're semi-predatory we are both hunters and gatherers and that is our natural state and I believe that to take any particular animal and twist it out of its natural state and try to get it to uh, function in some way that is unnatural to it is a good way to destroy the species a good way to lose the species of course, you know, every animal is, uh, adaptation, uh, capabilities are built into every animal. But even an animal that's adapting to a different, uh, environmental circumstance, it, it can only adapt within what its nature is. It cannot, uh, you can't take something like a honeybee and, and try to suddenly get it to live independently and, and live outside of a, a hive setting it 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 has no method of doing that it will die it will starve or freeze so um the same way with humans i believe that uh aggression towards other humans is unnatural and i believe passivism is also unnatural so i'm not a i'm not a good quaker uh i can never be a good quaker and when i came to the point of understanding this i came to a point of being okay with this I'm not an I'm not a good Quaker. I'll never be a good Quaker, and I'm okay with that. I'm a bad Quaker, and so um, this is where we came up with the uh, the name of the website. Now, this is kind of twofold in a sense as well. Uh, at the same time that uh, my my main residence is in Ohio, and there are a lot of Amish in Ohio. And so it's a uh, it's a constant thing for a Quaker to get confused with an Amish to the you know to the to the civilian population populations we might say, but um, really uh, it's a it's an unnecessary confusion. The the Amish are uh, uh, people who you know dress in a certain way and they have a certain lifestyle that they lead, and uh, Quakers are not limited by. Uh, rules like that we uh, you know uh, you can walk through a shopping mall and if there were six Quakers or 600 Quakers you wouldn't be able to tell which ones were the Quakers and which ones weren't because there's nothing in our mannerism or our dress or our uh, speech that designates us as a Quaker now there was kind of a trend in the 1800s of Quakers using words like thee and thou and so forth but I, I think for a most for the most part i think that fad has has faded um i i personally just see that as unnecessary um certainly not um uh, i think unnecessary is the best way to put it but then again what do i know i'm not a good quaker so anyway in the history of the website badquaker.com when uh among myself and my friends and my family when the terminology, when we started using the terminology of bad Quaker, uh, around that same time, I was doing a lot of posting on the internet in different locations under different names and different, you know, uh, fake names. You know how you do on the internet. You have different usernames in different forums and different locations. And I was uh, putting out quite a bit of stuff at different locations and it was really a lot of work to try to keep membership active in several different places so i began pulling back and, uh, and really just focusing on one website 
that uh, that I was helping. Uh, I was a moderator on for a friend uh, on his forum, and I I just tried to pull back and focus mostly to that one website, and I realized that I was doing a lot of writing at that website, and essentially I was almost becoming into a teaching situation where I was starting topics and then I would gather a a group of uh, commenters and we would work these things over and hash them out until we came to logical solutions and all of us grew in the process. And, uh, And I thought, you know, I'm putting a lot of energy into somebody else's website. And even the guy who ran that website, his advice for people on the internet is to get your own site, say what you have to say, and uh, you know, have your own voice in your own home. Uh, and that's what I did. I put together BadQuaker.com. My wife, Cindy, is the administrator. Uh, we had an initial donation that uh, purchased the equipment that you hear right now uh, being recorded through and uh, made the initial first year of securing the website name and, the, and uh, securing the hosting for the website. And uh, with that initial donation, we have now been on the, on the Internet since, I believe, March, if I recall. Real quick, I'll just look that up. Yes, since March of 2011, we have been podcasting. Uh, at first, we were trying to put out one podcast a week, and I was trying to do articles every day. And it became apparent that that was not the correct direction, that what we needed to do was podcast every day and put out articles occasionally. So uh, I still try, yeah, there's more background noise. I still try to uh, to have Kai do at least one podcast a week with me, although that's not possible when we're in Missouri like this with the motorhome because she's back in Ohio. And then uh, Kai writes occasionally an article. I'll write occasionally an article. And we have a couple other people that occasionally will uh, provide an article. And we steal articles. We've stolen some from some of the best writers out there. We've stolen from Jeffrey Tucker several times. Uh, we've stolen from Robert Higgs. We've stolen from, oh, my, uh, it, didn't, it doesn't come to mind immediately, but it's... Uh, you know, uh, a pretty good list, uh, Hans Hermann Hoppe. Uh, we've stolen from some of the best of them. And uh, we just put that right on there and don't ask any permission. We just do it. And um, so we tr- now we're trying to do that whenever possible, but we're trying to focus more on having a daily podcast. And now that we're on the Liberty ne- uh, Radio Network, uh, that has become the primary uh, way that we're getting the message across. So, getting back to what we're actually doing and why why BadQuaker.com exists. Um, the, the, the focus that I mentioned earlier for BadQuaker.com is the zero aggression principle, or the non-aggression principle, property rights, and liberty. And we try to, you know, we will talk about things like anarchy and roads and... Uh, you know, different things like that. Uh, but, um, but really what we want to focus on is, is those three, uh, are those three, um, topics. And we want to try to bring everything back to those because those are fundamental to moving us towards a better society. Uh, we do believe in some pretty solid things like, for instance, 
um, the state, we, we understand the separation between what is the state and what is government. We understand that government uh, and all of its services and all the things that government does can be legitimate if government is based on voluntarism, not aggression, then government can be legitimate. However, what is often the case, but not always the case, the government relies upon aggression. And typically, when a government relies upon aggression, uh, it also falls back on to utilizing lies along with aggression to stay in power. So um, then the only way that government using aggression and lies can fund itself is through theft. So eventually, any time a government falls to the, in this direction, it, be, it becomes the state. It uses the state as its method of legitimacy. So when a government... Okay, I'm going to have to close the window now. It's getting noisy out there. Okay, we'll try that again. So then when a government utilizes the force, the, the aggression, the aggression and the theft and the lying... Uh, to keep itself in power, it, it, it is using the state. Any government who uses theft, aggression, and lies uh, is an illegitimate government and is destined to fall. And we understand that there are, uh, throughout history, there have been uh, long periods of times where there was legitimate government and no state, voluntary government. And we have an article, uh, you know, Rothbard did a wonderful piece on uh, on ancient Christian Ireland. Uh, this is Ireland from about, I believe, about 600 A.D. till the uh, until Cromwell and the, and the Roundheads invaded, the Puritan Roundheads invaded, uh, if I recall, in the 1600s. And uh, Ireland at that time... Even though you get a lot of lies from the from the current uh, state, oh, let me say this too. Uh, when we refer to the state here on BadQuaker.com, um, what we're what we are referring to is the entity that uses aggression, lies, and theft to hold power. We're not necessarily referring to a specific government like the government in Washington, D.C., or the government in London, or the government in, uh, you know, uh, wherever. All of those governments uh, use the state to stay in power. But then again, Goldman Sachs uses the state to, stay, to hold its power uh, through, through its relationship with government. Companies like General Electric and Goldman Sachs and Monsanto, these massive corporations whose uh, whose tendency is to use uh, the aggression of the state in order to uh, maintain their position in the market, those companies are, are those corporations are as much a part of the state as the governments in Washington and London and so forth. So. Uh, so when you when you get this in your mind and you understand that the state is bigger than just the government, the state is this larger entity that makes up all of the all of these puppet organizations that function in conjunction function in conjunction huh, with uh, with the government to aggress upon uh, people. 
So we're talking about the banking industry, the military, military industrial complex, the uh, major uh, food producers, the uh, agribusiness, uh, all of these uh, puppets that are out there utilizing the aggression of government in order to keep us all enslaved. They are all aspects of the state. And we believe the state to be an entity that people believe in their mind exists, and therefore they act based on those beliefs. But in reality, there is no state. There is only people acting upon their beliefs. But because so many people believe in the state, when human beings act, claiming that they're acting representing the state they're able to do things that human beings would otherwise never be allowed to do, like aggress. So that a person who puts on a costume, let's say, let's say uh, a person puts on a, uh, oh, I don't know, let's go with a really stereotypical uh, 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 costume that a, that a kid might dress up in for Halloween. Let's say you put on a Batman costume with a with a cape and a and a, and a Batman mask, and you and you're all dressed up as Batman, and you go walking down the street, and you whip off of your belt. You've you've got this fancy fancy utility belt around your waist. And you see somebody standing there and you whip off of your belt a can of mace and you spray him in the face. Now, that wouldn't be accepted. Uh, people standing around watching, would that would not be an acceptable activity. You, in all likelihood, um, you're, you're going to get yourself in a lot of serious trouble in pretty much any society if you tried something silly like that. And yet, if a person dresses up in a costume that indicates to everybody who's looking that they are an employee of the state. And then they walk up to someone and give them an order, and that person doesn't obey that order, and they whip out a can of mace and spray them in the face with the mace. Then we accept that because we all believe in the state. Well, I don't, but most, most of the public does. And that behavior, that unacceptable behavior that that costumed man just did, becomes acceptable because of the belief in the state. But if you didn't believe in the state, then the man in the costume spraying the people with mace would be unacceptable, and the public would do something about it. But because the public believes in the state, the public does nothing, and the man in the suit continues to aggress. Okay, so where were we? So we're talking about non-aggression and the, and the basis of why badquaker.com exists. So as we understand the non-aggression or the zero aggression principle, then we start to understand, we understand that the state is something that people agree upon and they agree to believe in and therefore it exists. And if they stopped believing in it, it wouldn't exist anymore. Um, let me read to, to further uh, just get this right into the very basics of it. I'm going to quote L. Neal Smith. L. Neal Smith, uh, uh, well, I'll, let me read the quote. A libertarian is a person who believes that no one has the right under any circumstances to initiate force against another human being or to advocate 
or delegate its initiation. Those who act consistently with this principle are libertarians, whether they realize it or not. Those who fail to act consistently with it, with it are not libertarians, regardless of what they may claim. That's L. Neil Smith. Now, that, uh, that's an explanation, that's his explanation of what a libertarian is, and that is also an explanation of the non-aggression principle, or the zero-aggression principle. According to the zero-aggression principle, you are allowed to do, you are allowed to take any action you deem necessary to defend yourself and your property. Let's get more basic. To understand the zero-aggression principle, you have to understand first that we own ourselves. We have a right to own ourselves. We are our own property. We have a right to property, and we, each of us individually, is our own property. In addition to the property that we own just by the sheer fact that we exist, ourselves we own. In addition to that, we own the fruit of our labor. So, for example... If I pick, uh, if, if there is a tree that no one particularly owns, and I pick up an apple that's fallen from that tree, the act of picking up that apple shows ownership of that apple. And when I eat the apple, the apple becomes a part of me. It becomes a part of me just like any every other part of me. So now, my property rights in myself are the same as the property rights in that apple. I have exhausted energy. I have improved the situation. I have homesteaded this apple that no one else previously owned. If, on the other hand, someone owns the apple tree, then by nature they own the apples that come from the apple tree, unless they've abandoned them. In which case, if I pick one up, it's mine. This is this is based, the basic understanding of uh, of homesteading. If another person owns the apple and the apple tree and they're willing to give me an apple, then when they give me the apple, it's mine. It's my property. Or if they choose to trade with me, I may choose to trade my labor or I may choose to trade some item that I own. In which case, we both profit from the exchange and the owner of the apple tree gets whatever property that I trade, and I get the apple, and I own the apple, and he owns whatever property that I traded him. And all this is done without aggression, and without the government, or without any other body of people or persons in any way initiating aggression. So then, we understand the basics of property. And I have a right to defend my property. I have a right to defend myself, myself as part of my property. And if the apple is rightfully mine, I have a right to defend the apple or any other property that I own. I don't have the right to initiate aggression upon someone else. And no one has the right to initiate aggression upon me. That would be violating my property rights. And really, when you think about it, People talk about different kinds of rights. There's this kinds of rights. There's civil rights. There's gun rights. There's all these different rights. But if you really think about it, there is only one right, and that is the right of property. 
Everything else comes under the right of property. I have the right to defend myself because what am I defending? I'm defending my property. I have the right to, uh, to move about freely. Why is that? Because I own myself and to restrict my movement would be slavery. And if I'm a slave, then I don't own myself. So I have a right to move around freely. On the other hand, I don't have a right to aggress upon someone else's property. So I can't step on your toe. And in an extension of your toe, I can't step on the land that you own unless you allow it. So that's basically the non-aggression principle and the zero aggression principle. And that, Kai likes to call it the non-aggression principle. I typically refer to it as the zero aggression principle. But, um, but it's all the same. And the zero aggression principle is perfectly comfortable with self-defense and is based on property right, right of property, and homesteading. Now, some people, uh, for instance, um, Stefan Molyneux, who runs uh, Free Domain Radio, um, really has a tendency to think things out to the nth degree. Um, uh, Stefan has this thing that he refers to as universally preferable behavior. And he's put a lot of effort into it, and I I really like it. It's it's good. He has a, a book actually uh, by that title, and I, I and I enjoyed the the book immensely, and and I recommend it to anyone. Um, but I tend to look at the same argument. His his argument with universally preferable behavior is that you can use reason and logic, and you can determine what morals are based on universally preferable behavior. Uh, what is aggression, what is not aggression, respect of property. You take all these things and you uh, begin to develop a system of universally preferable behavior that can outline morals for you. Uh, and therefore, you can determine right from wrong, essentially. And I don't disagree with Stefan, but part of the problem with Stefan Molyneux is that he is a rabid atheist. Not just an atheist, but a rabid atheist. Uh, so that every argument has to come back to that. And uh, I try not to... Here at BadQuaker.com, all of us, there's a varying opinion uh, about theology among those of us who are regulars at BadQuaker.com. And there's, there's really no... Uh, if I think across the different ones of us, you know, there's really no universal ground that we all stand on with theology or atheism uh, at badquaker.com. So, uh, so for that reason, we have made an effort to make everything that we produce at badquaker.com acceptable to a theist or an atheist or an agnostic or a very religious person, or a not very religious person, or a person who just doesn't care. We we don't want to make any part of badquaker.com um, dependent upon a, a specific theology or lack thereof. So uh, so for that reason, I appreciate all the work that Stefan Molyneux has done at Free Domain Radio, but uh, I, I try to look at things in, a, in as simple a view as possible. So, for example, with universally, <clears throat> excuse me, with universally uh, preferable behavior, I tend to think, well, what would the squirrels do? Yeah, what would the squirrels do? In other words, 
you know, I, I learned a lot about human nature by just taking some time and really watching animals, watching blue jays, really getting to understand how blue jays interact with each other, how squirrels interact with other squirrels and with other animals that are not squirrels. I, I really spent some serious time um, investigating how wild uh, animals and with squirrels around a town, you might call them, uh, hmm, well, they're certainly not domesticated, but they're not really wild either. They're, uh, they're, uh, they're quite different from squirrels that are out in the wild. But, um, but either way, I, I have tried to use them as an example and try to learn as much from them as possible and then put that back on humans and say, okay, you know, there's, there's no squirrel police. There's no, uh, squirrel 10 commandments. There's no squirrel, uh, constitution or co squirrel bill of rights. And there's no squirrel ch juries and there's no squirrel trials. So how is it that they don't all fall upon each other and kill each other in the, you know, in the Hobbesian, uh, violence of all against all. And the reason why is because that is entirely illogical for a species to behave that way. You see, every species has certain things that drive it. There is hunger. There is the desire to be temperature-wise, to, to be comfortable, to, to, you know, find that cool place or that warm place that, that is most comfortable to your species. There is the desire to reproduce. And then there are also, according to which species that we're talking about, there are also certain social desires that are, well, in Stefan Molyneux's way of thinking, that are universally preferable to that species. So, for example, uh, talking about squirrels, squirrels tend to be extremely independent and yet entirely sociable. They... Uh, they will huddle together, I mean physically right up against each other to stay warm. Even though when they're out and about in their normal squirrel day activities, uh, one squirrel will not touch another unless they're initiating a fight or unless it's some type of mating uh, behavior. Now these are not rules that the squirrels have written down on, on bark on some tree somewhere. It's behavior that the squirrels understand by nature. And they, they don't need to teach it to each other. It's, it's built within their social structure. Um, let's go with something even more simple than a squirrel, because somebody might be able to argue, well, no, squirrels learn this behavior uh, as they grow up. Well, how about bees? Bees don't learn any kind of behavior. Bees don't have schools that they go through. Bees don't have any kind of initiations that they follow. Bees don't have rules written on walls. Bees don't have judges or juries or policemen. And yet, bees possess extremely complicated uh, structures of their society. The, the, the hive is far... The more you learn about how a beehive works... The more amazing it really is. An anthill could be a t uh, another example. Uh, an anthill 
is an amazingly complex structure, a, a, a hill of ants, not just the physical mound, but a colony of ants is extremely complicated. They're now finding that a single colony of ants stretches from California all the way uh, into the southeastern United States, a single colony of ants. It's a super colony. It has multiple queens, but it's all the same colony. And actually, it's kind of a scary concept for people in the pest control business. But nobody teaches the ant its behavior. I uh, I garden, and uh, I I observe the ants, and the ants will do an interesting thing. I I have a lot of grape plants. I grow my own grapes. I make my own wine. And so I, uh, every year I get hit with aphids. Now, I don't spray any kind of chemicals to fight the aphids. I, I've learned how nature does this, and so I've adapted my garden so that I can fight these uh, pests using nature itself rather than chemicals. So uh, every year the aphids come and they start to attack my uh, my grapes. And the ants will uh, come up to the aphids and bite them. And they, and they inject them with a almost like a drug that causes the aphid to be very docile and hungry. Uh, and so the ant then cuts off the wings of the aphid so that it can't fly away. And then the ant will herd that aphid into a group of other aphids. And there will be these shepherd ants that keep the aphids all in one location on one leaf. And they just devour that whole leaf. And while they're doing this, while the shepherd ants keep the aphids, keep these drugged up, disabled aphids, all there just eating and eating and eating, nursery ants will come up and, uh, or I shouldn't call them nursery ants, I should call them... Um, milkmaid ants, although I don't know the gender of the ants. I'm assuming they're all male drones, but either way, um, the the milking ants uh, come to the herd and uh, milk the aphids, and then not of actual, like, cow's milk, but they that they squeeze a, a juice from them, a, 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 uh, an aphid milk is all I can explain it is. Um, anyway, so they milk the aphid and they take the droplet and they hold it in their mandibles and they carry it back to the, uh, to the nursery of the, of the anthill of the ant colony. And they feed the ants in there with this, uh, with this milk. And so they literally capture, herd, and milk aphids. And they'll do that right there, uh, you know, right, right on the leaves of the grape plants. Now the wonderful thing about this for a grape grower is that all the aphids are in one location because if you have if you're working with a hill of ants like that don't attack the ants don't put poison down for the ants let the ants do their thing the ants are a friend of a gardener so the ants will gather the aphids and they are the ants are very thorough they will not allow stray aphids to just wander around your your grape plants the ants will gather the aphids all onto individual leaves, and they'll begin, begin consuming those leaves. And 
as many aphids as come and attack your grape plants, the ants will go and gather those aphids and uh, drug them and cut their wings off so they can't fly away. So all you have to do is go out every couple of days and all the aphids are in one place for you. The ants have done this for you. They're all located on individual leaves. And if you leave two or three, maybe five leaves, just leave those alone and let the ants continue with their herd. And then all the other places where the ants, all the other leaves that the ants have got the the uh, aphids uh, consuming, just break off that leaf because you've lost that leaf anyway. Break off that leaf and stomp it with your foot and kill all the aphids. You see, that's much better than spraying chemicals all over your pl- all over your plants and then letting good bugs eat those chemicals and letting uh, and then eventually consuming those chemicals. It's much better to use the natural method and just allow the ants to do this for you. And nobody teaches the ants that. This is universally preferable behavior to ants. It's natural to them. And by working with the obvious natural process, I can produce more grapes. And I produce grapes that are not uh, covered in pesticides. And I don't harm the, the good uh, bugs that are in my garden. I don't harm, um, I don't pollute my ground with petrochemicals that, that, you know, I don't do all that. I have found this way to follow nature and, uh, it takes a little effort, but n- not really any more effort than going out and spraying for aphids all the time. I used to, uh, I used to put out ladybugs and I have a pretty good population of ladybugs in my garden. But uh, but the ants, in addition to their herding and in addition to their milking uh, processes, they also have soldier ants. And you have to watch for this when you snatch a leaf off and kill a bunch of aphids because the soldier, soldier ants will aggressively attack you. Okay, I hope I can take that out uh, and leaving the words back in. Nikki uh, decided to alarm, to sound the alarm because there was somebody walking too close to the motorhome. Okay, so back to my topic. So... Stefan Molyneux goes to a lot of trouble to try. He thinks and thinks and thinks. The guy is so smart. He thinks this all through, and he comes up with universal, uh, universally preferable behavior. And long before I read Stefan's wonderful book, uh, Universally Preferable Behavior, I figured it out by watching the ants and watching the squirrels and watching the blue jays. And once again, the wonders of podcasting in a motorhome, we had another interruption. So I'll try to get back to this, and I think it's about time we wrap this up anyway. But, um, okay, so, yeah, uh, Stefan Molyneux has spent a lot of mental energy figuring this stuff out. And, um, and it was nice when I first discovered his work, because I had all these things rolling around in my mind, but I had no logical way to apply them to humanity. And uh, so I read Stefan's books, and um, it, it was very nice, because here he has done all the logical thinking, all the hard work he's done for me. Well, I just, you know, threw peanuts to squirrels and watched them fight over him. Um, I took the easy route, and he went through all the intellectual uh, calisthenics for me. So, thanks, Stefan. Now, 
in relating these animals and their behavior to humans. I've said this quite often. You know, if, if a butterfly, and this is not a if, they do this, if a butterfly can leave the jungles of central Mexico and having never been on this journey, it can migrate all the way to Canada, reproduce, and migrate all the way back to the same tree in Mexico. If a butterfly can do that, and they do, then humans can live and function peaceably without a policeman, without a judge, without a congressman, without people making laws and enforcing laws and using aggression to enforce upon other people their will. Humans can do this. If butterflies can do this. If if every other animal can follow its own natural behavior and survive and thrive, humans can as well. But where the threat to humanity comes in is when we abandon what is natural for us and we adopt a, a method of survival that is not natural. And that's the catch with badquaker.com. That's the thing that I want to present at badquaker.com that I believe is unique uh, within the liberty movement, within libertarianism, within libertopia, as some, of it, uh, as some have called it, within the anarcho-capitalist movement. Here's the real difference, in, and it's the thing that I try to bring to badquaker.com that I, I think is, is unique to, to what we have going on here. You see, by being a theist, and I, it allows me to take the, the Adam and Eve story, and whether you don't accept the Adam and Eve story at all, or if you accept it as a general overview, or if you accept it as a literal step-by-step explanation as to the origin of man and so forth, what I'm about to say should still fit. The, the basic story... Uh, of Adam and Eve is that the Creator uh, placed them in this perfect world, in this in this Eden, and they were instructed to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And then, at some point in time, a, a rule was given: uh, you can do anything you want, you can go anywhere you want, you can you have free reign of the world. Here's the one thing you can't do. Don't touch the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, uh, in the story, Adam did exactly that. He ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, death was introduced. Now, the way... I see this because here's the funny part. Adam lived about, uh, that we know of roughly eight or 900 years after that. I can't remember now. I'd have to do the math, but, um, so we know he didn't die immediately. So we know that that death, because the way the Bible says it is that the day that you eat the fruit, you shall surely die. And yet he didn't die. He took almost a thousand years to die. So what does that mean? 
Well, there's several according to the according to which theologian you're listening to. There's several explanations for that, but here's what I think. I think, in a sense, he died because there's another story in the Bible, and it tells about. Uh, you might be able to hear Nikki in the background make a noise there, but this other story in the Bible is often is often believed to be the story of uh, Satan, of the devil. And it says that he was uh, magnificent, beautiful. He had a, m a musical voice, and he was just amazing to look at. And he was located in the Garden of Eden. And then he got it in his mind one day that he would become a god. He would ascend upon high, and he would sit on a throne like a god, and he would be like a god. And for that reason, he was cast out. And I think that's not the devil. I think that's humanity. I think that all law comes from nature, from God. And and that nature, that God, is the thing that created us. Whether you're an atheist or a theist or anywhere in between, whatever it is that created us, that is, in in essence, it is, it is the natural origin of us. Whether through eons of evolution or through special creation or whatever, However we got here, there are certain laws that are natural to us. And, there, and, and just like any other animal, these laws exist within our minds and in our hearts. And we have a tendency to want to follow them because they are universally preferable. But when man decides upon him, takes it upon himself to put himself into the position of God or of nature... And he decides that he will bring his will upon other men and make them obey the laws that he has decided upon. Then you have an unnatural act. You have something where that person is actually, that, that lawmaker, that lawgiver, is placing him in the position of the creator. See, because whatever you believe created us, whether it's eons of time and evolution or, or a specific creator or whatever in between. Whatever created us created certain laws that our species, that are unique to our species. And as long as we obey those laws, our species will thrive and survive. But when we violate those laws and make new laws for ourselves, we are abandoning our creator and we're making our own laws up. And when human beings make laws and try to force those upon other human beings using aggression, then we are making ourselves to be gods. We, and that is exactly what Adam did. And that is exactly how death was introduced. And that is exactly the purpose of the state. The state exists through the aggression of attempting to enforce its laws. And, and who is the state? The state is simply people who believe. It's an act of faith. It's a religion. The atheist who supports the state is not an atheist. He's a very religious person. The theist who believes in God, maybe a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, Maybe they think they only believe in one God, and yet if they support the state, in reality, the state is their God. And that's the message that BadQuaker.com is trying to bring.
that we have to stop believing in that false god and return back to that universally preferable behavior, to the zero aggression principle. Return back to natural rights, natural law, and our species will survive and thrive. But if we don't, we won't. Think of the path humanity is headed down. Think of all the worst-case scenarios for humanity. That's all brought on by the aggression of the state. And if it were gone, we would return back to Eden. Not to a perfect world, not to, an, not to, not to where n nobody gets a scrape on their knee and, and everybody gets along perfectly and we all hold hands. Not that kind of world. But a real perfect world. As I've said before, the, the God that created this world created kittens and put snakes in the grass. And that's the world I hope for. Where human beings are responsible for their actions, both, both for the good and the bad. The other way I've said it is that with the honey comes the sting of the bee. That's utopia for the libertarian. Folks, thanks for listening to BadQuaker.com podcast. As I always say, for more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights, go to BadQuaker.com. Thanks a lot, folks. <laughs>